Thank you, everyone, for tuning back into the Purposeful Caregiver podcast, historically the Purposeful OT, but (laughs) here we're serving caregivers. And I am so excited to be sharing this space today with Dr. Elton Bordenov. And he is with AT Still University talking about a wonderful grant-funded program to serve here in the community. So I will let you kind of elaborate and introduce yourself. So tell us who you are, where you're from. As you know, my name is Elton Bordenave. I am director of the Center for Resilience and Aging here at AT Still University. And in that role, we have center has a number of activities, including, you know, more traditional research and and the like. But we have been a vehicle for community outreach. It's been a major part of the university's mission since it was founded and is a central element in the Center for Resilience and Aging. One of the new programs that we have developed is called CarePlace, and we call it CarePlace with the PL and C and place all capitalized to stand for planning to care, learning to care, and connecting to care, which are the central elements of the program. The way it works is that we invite family caregivers who are interested to meet one-on-one with one of our clinicians. And I should say both of the clinicians are OTs. It's designed to be an economical approach from a time perspective, because we know that caregivers are frequently overwhelmed, right? They have a lot going on. And so we try to make this such that we can engage them in as few sessions as possible to get the maximum benefit out to them. The first session is a kind of a general assessment of their circumstance, how they are doing mentally, physically, psychologically, emotionally, and so on. And then we look at what demands are being placed on them by their caregiving circumstance, what are the conditions that their care recipient are managing, and how they are called upon to deal with those things. So frequently, there are lots of tasks that caregivers are asked to do for which they are untrained and don't have the confidence or knowledge to really feel like they can do it, and yet they are doing it. And so we look at that. We also look at what community resources might be available that they are either utilizing or not, try to kind of get a sense of what might be available to them. And then finally, we actually visit the home and we do a home assessment of the environment to be able to make recommendations for modifications. That actually covers two sessions because the first session is the eval, the second session is the home visit. And then the third session, we deliver the plan. The OT will put a plan together to address self-care, to address the skills and knowledge needed to do the job of caregiving, along with recommendations for connection to community resources and modifications to the home. Now, what makes our program unique is that we do a fair amount of hand-holding. We don't just give you the phone number and say, here, you should connect with Dialeride, or here, you should contact Meals on Wheels, or you should consider doing, you know, connecting with this respite organization. We really want to make sure that that connection happens. If you're, we go through the plan and you're like, yes, I want to do that. We try to make sure that that happens for you. We follow up with training. So if we identify needs and skills that the caregiver does not have, that they need to be able to do the job, we will provide them with additional training. So we have a number of modules. We have mobilities and transfers. 
We have a incontinence management module. We have a skin and wound care module. We have a nutrition module. We have a home safety module, several dementia management modules. So we will put those individuals through that training. Again, if they decide to accept the plan and want to go forward with it, we make that training available to them. And we can do all of this that I have described either virtually or in person. So if someone could only connect with us by Zoom, we can even do the home eval, the home assessment via Zoom. We did that quite successfully during the pandemic. That is, for the most part, the gist. We do have a number of uh, community partners that we work with. For example, Rebuilding Together Southwest. They do a lot of home modifications. They will frequently have resources that are available at low or no cost. And I should say as well that our entire program is a no-cost program. This program is so comprehensive to be able to serve because those are some common things being a practicing clinician. I have a background in skilled nursing and acute care, and we always talk about family caregiver training. And that's how I stepped into the community space because so often that doesn't happen. (laughs) A lot of family caregivers are struggling. And I really like how you mentioned that you handhold and will kind of walk with your family caregivers and recipients, because a lot of times they feel really overwhelmed, not only with their circumstances, but trying to cope maybe with a new or chronic condition, trying to cope with balancing their personal life and their caregiver life. And that's a very common complaint is, oh, well, at the hospital or the rehab, they just passed me you know, some pamphlets. I don't have time to read through pamphlets or they gave me a phone number and it was disconnected or they gave me this whole list of resources and those community maps and those resources are well-intended, but they're not really that useful or functional for those family caregivers. Those same messages and that same information is what really motivated and helped to guide our creation of CarePlace. We know from the research The number one stress driver for family caregivers is the fact that they're being asked, for example, to do things for which they lack training or knowledge on how to do effectively. And they're afraid. They're concerned that they're not doing it right or that they're going to harm their loved one. And so we thought, well, being a medical school, why don't we simply offer people, you know, the hands-on training that they need? And there are some I'm not going to say that, you know, people take advantage of all that we offer because, again, their lives are filled with other demands. And so we will oftentimes categorize for them and give emphasis to things that we think might be most important for them. For example, mobility and transfers is probably the module that we use most frequently for folks because the number one source of injury for caregivers is the orthopedic injuries incurred as they are attempting to transfer or assist a loved one getting in and out of something, even just trying to get them in and out of bed. Oftentimes, of course, caregivers themselves are older and you know they're not as physically active perhaps as they would, might want to be or could be. They are in a weakened state as well. And so they get injured. And so mobilities and transfer is one that we try to give everyone, knowing that it's kind of a big risk area for all caregivers. Yeah, we kind of take for granted, you know, when we have that mobility, 
thinking of how many times in a day, you know, you get only get out of bed in the morning and get into bed in the evening. But typically, if you're, you know, physically helping someone, they need to rest in the afternoon or they need to go to the bathroom multiple times a day. And so that repetitive lifting and bending and stooping can be really detrimental to a lot of family caregivers. As well as learning how to use the assistive devices correctly and how to help their loved one use the assistive devices correctly. I mean, an ill-fitting walker is not a good thing. You know, it it (laughs) can be a a dangerous thing, you know, and or knowing and understanding how to use a bedboard. There's a lot of nuances and skills that folks need that they don't currently have. Just to talk on the policy side a little bit, what we found and what really motivated us I've been thinking about doing this since 2008, and we didn't get funding until about 2019. But the reality is, is that you know family caregivers and families are confronted with just a few choices in terms of how to manage circumstances. Either mm-hmm. they place a loved one in a facility, which can be very expensive and prohibitive for some. They can hire someone, again, which can be challenging and prohibitive if cost is an issue or they can take care of that individual themselves. And that's what more and more folks are kind of finding circumstances where they're at. And so that really kind of was reality that kind of moved us forward in saying, okay, let's see what we can create. I'm not going to say that we have a lot of bandwidth because I don't, I have two full-time clinicians, but even with two full-time clinicians, our calendar is not booked yet. But I'm hoping that it will be, and I suspect that it will be once we really get underway here, especially as we get into the fall. Absolutely. Yeah, I was going to ask kind of what that structure was. So you have the two OTs. Is it like a clinic space or a community space that families come to? We have operated in a number of different ways. During COVID, everything we did was over Zoom. And we still have that available to us. If someone cannot get out and would prefer to meet by Zoom, we can connect with them over Zoom. We can do the home inspection over Zoom if they can use their phone to connect and walk us through the house, deliver the plan and whatever training that we have. There are modules that we prefer to deliver in person, obviously, but we can offer the training entirely virtually. However, most folks that we're seeing, we are seeing in person. We can see them here on our campus here in Mesa, or very shortly, we will have two sites in uh, City of Phoenix Senior Centers where we'll be conducting clinic two half days a week at both sites. So there'll be two sites with two half days where the OT will be physically present. We'll take appointments outside of that time frame as well. We have another location at the Beatitudes, which is a Beatitudes Campus of Care, if you're familiar with that. Obviously, we will continue to see people on our campus, at our clinic here on campus. So depending on where they are, it is possible that we can go to their home. That's great to kind of expand that reach, you know, to a few areas throughout the valley. How do family caregivers find you? What is kind of the process? First on the internet, they can go to ATSU and search ATSU Care Place or Center for Resilience and Aging, and they'll find our website. And on the website, there is a link for Care Place and there's a phone number in there, or they can call us directly. Certainly, I'm happy to provide 
I have to remember the exact direct line that we just established for it, but I have it right here. We can um, put them in like the show notes so that way people can access it via there. That would be great because I do have a direct line for care place that folks can call. When family members and family caregivers kind of step into the clinic, you know, first start receiving the services through care place. What's kind of a common theme or that you feel, whether it's like their energy when they're stepping in or a complaint that they're saying? I think the most common thing that we hear either during and even after, because, you know, we'll do things for folks, you know, we connect them with resources and provide training and the like. But the thing that has struck me most is that folks will say, well, you know, you saw me and you heard me. Frequently, caregivers are, while they are a major part of our continuum of care, you know, they're a big part of the healthcare system. They're at home doing the work. They frequently are invisible when they are doing it, right? And or even when they are out in public or in with their loved one in a healthcare setting, they're frequently not engaged. You know, the doctor, the primary care physician or the specialist is focused on the care recipient even though the caregiver is central to the success of whatever treatment protocols are being applied, you know, who is going to see to it that the medications are taken at the appropriate time and the appropriate doses? Who is going to make sure that whatever other orders the doctor or the clinician of whatever sort is, whether it's exercises prescribed by PT, who's going to help with that? Who's going to make sure that that happens? Well, it's going to be the family caregiver. They feel neglected and they feel unseen. So when we connect with them, we frequently hear that, you know, at the end, it's like, well, what was it that we did that helped you the most? And it's like, well, you saw me and you heard me. As you noted, it can be really overwhelming for folks, especially when things happen rapidly. Oftentimes, you know, even if they're already in the caregiving role, it might be kind of lightweight. You know, I'm driving my mom to the doctor or I go over there and I help her a couple of days a week with cleaning the house. And then mom gets sicker. Something else happens that makes it that much more challenging. So there's more doctor visits and there's more medications to attend to, more activities of daily living that mom needs direct assistance with and or whatever care delivery or medication delivery or say skin care, you know, if they're bed bound all of a sudden, these things overwhelm people. And as a consequence, you know, they're hoping and praying that, you know, when home health comes, that's going to save us, right? And then home, <laughs> yeah. home health comes and they're in and out. And maybe you got it, maybe you didn't. And so we, we find folks really overwhelmed, you know, and sometimes quite emotional. Absolutely. I can, you know, value having clients and family caregivers appreciate, you know, being heard and seen because. So often when they are doing their daily routines, we don't take the time to think or consider what they've done to get to that appointment. You know, working with clients in in the community, some of them start their day at three or four in the morning to make sure that their loved one is showered, had breakfast, dressed, can get them transferred into the car to get 
to a 10 or 11 o'clock appointment um, across town. And I mean, the depths and lengths that they go through, it really is one of those invisible jobs that, (laughs) and they don't get paid. I don't know very many people that would show up to, (laughs) to a job and work tirelessly around the clock and not collect a paycheck. You know, and I know for so many, it's not always about that. There really is such a a strained element of that emotional and financial burden. We're happy to be able to do this. I'm very happy to say that we've only recently received a substantial amount of funding to sustain this through December of 2024. So we have about 20 months worth of funding to keep us going, and hopefully we'll get more in the future that we'll be able to continue doing this and offering this in the community. Yeah, this is such a wonderful support for families and caregivers. In addition to the training that you provide through the grant and the funding sources, do they have access? Like if they kind of go through the program once, can they return after a certain amount of time? At any time they can contact us. You know, if they need additional training, they want to go through the training again. If the circumstances change and they want to meet with the clinician, one of the clinicians again to discuss the situation, they can do that as well. We don't drop them. We're always there. (laughs) We've seen you and you've gone through the program, then, you know, we're there for you even after the fact. As long as the funding is sustained, we can sustain the program itself. Wonderful. Do families have to submit any kind of financial records or residence records? There are no requirements whatsoever. They just have to call and make an appointment. That's so wonderful because that can be another barrier. There can be funding sources, but there's a lot of paperwork to qualify. (laughs) Yeah, we've tried to make the barriers zero, you know, so it doesn't matter where they are economically. It doesn't matter where they are in their caregiver journey, whether they've done it for just a few months or whether they've been doing it for years. You know, we are currently, full disclosure here, we are currently doing research on the program and no one is required to participate in that. If they are willing to do the survey for us pre-post, we always appreciate folks who are willing to volunteer to be party to the research. But again, that's strictly voluntary. There's no, you can call, receive the services without any expectation on our end for you're doing anything other than coming to the appointment as scheduled. Yeah, the research component can be so important because in the days when, you know, access to the internet is so easy, finding relevant and really quality information can be a challenge. And so, you know, helping the community through knowledge and scholarship through research can be such a good validation to what you're doing. But then just allow the family caregivers peace of mind too, that the information they're getting and the training they're getting is supported. I tell folks all the time that I don't like to waste people's time. Everything that we do has a basis in the evidence that's at a minimum suggests that it will help. If folks do participate, for example, in in the research, you know, that is helpful to us in that as we are able to demonstrate that what we are doing is effective and does work and makes a difference in the community, it makes it easier than in the future to gain additional funding to maintain the program. And that's really a contribution that folks can make if they like, that's not out of pocket. 
you know, it's just being willing to share the information with us to use in research and publication. I know you kind of envision the future of your program. And of course, sustainability is one of them. But what is kind of an additional piece that if you had that magic wand, what's that hope or that vision for the growth? The hope would be that we could develop a large enough referral base that we could have permanent clinic space that caregivers would be able to actually come into and that we would it would be a standing resource in the community that people would embrace. The big challenge is that, you know, frequently we don't even necessarily always use the word caregiver when approaching folks. And sometimes we just refer to it as we just say, are you helping anyone? Folks are kind of put off by the caregiver title. Sometimes uh, spousal caregivers in particular see what they're doing as their obligation as a spouse. And they will sometimes just reject the whole idea that they're they're caregiving. This is what I'm supposed to do, right? If I had a magic wand, I would wave it over that and have people just kind of embrace the fact that, okay, yes, I'm helping someone. And I know that I need help myself because the number one challenge is getting people to realize that it can be very deleterious to your health physically, emotionally, mentally, ignoring yourself out of love for the person you're caring for is not helping the person you're caring for, right? Because mm-hmm. if you get sick and you are no longer able to help them, then who's going to do that? And so that's why, for example, people are sometimes taken aback when we start our evaluation with them. We don't start with the care recipient. And people need to realize that this program is focused on the caregiver. We help the care recipient by strengthening the caregiver, strengthening their ability to take care of themselves, as well as strengthen their knowledge and skills so that they can do a better job of being a partner with their care recipient and that care recipient's care. So it is a um, ephemeral and ethereal sort of thing that I would wish for. Getting an actual physical clinic or having more money to pay clinicians, those are perhaps easier (laughs) easier to get. (laughs) than getting a whole society to change its attitude about caregiving and valuing them as a society in a way that we don't now. Yeah, absolutely. That is quite the mission to embark on. (laughs) Are there any last tidbits that you would like to share? Other than, you know, with the information that will be put up with this podcast, please pick up the phone. Regardless of where you are in that journey, especially if you are early in the journey, because we think that planning is what it's all about. Looking into the future and being honest with ourselves about, okay, so, because sometimes folks don't like to look into the future and say, well, (laughs) it's a scary place. (laughs) Mom, dad, or, you know, my spouse, whoever that might be, has this condition. And we're not saying to look into the future to, see bad things. We're looking into the future to say, how do we make the future a place where everyone is getting to live the best and highest quality of life that they can? So if you're saying right now that, well, I'm just driving my mom to the doctor, that's great. So there's a reason, right? Mom's not driving herself anymore. Why isn't mom driving herself anymore? And what are you doing? And Do you know what your mom's condition is and what the progression of that is going to be? And 
Do you even know what medication she's currently taking and why? Getting people who are early in the process to get a handle on it, understand what the future is likely to hold, and getting that knowledge up front so that as things change, you're ready. You know, Shakespeare said, readiness is all. And so if you're ready, and I would say that those folks who have taken our advice and acted the plans that we provided them fully have always said after the fact that they were glad they did it because the future came sooner than they thought it would. And when it did, they were ready. That's so wonderful. I mean, that's usually a point that I always notice and kind of touch on is when you're younger and you're planning your future, you plan, you know, how many kids you want to have, how many bedrooms your house needs to have and, you know, the location. But once we get to that kind of certain point, we stop planning for the future. And then we kind of have that fear of the future. And if we continue that planning process, you know, it could really set us up to be in a much stronger place. You know, it doesn't have to be a circumstance where the caregiver is overwhelmed. It doesn't have to be a circumstance where the quality of life for all parties concerned declines. It can be a circumstance where with preparedness, you can deal with the situation and make the best of it for all parties concerned. Well, thank you so much for your time. It was great just even for myself to learn more about your program because we certainly do have a lot of families that, you know, reach out and now to learn that there's that additional space coming up. When do you anticipate the Phoenix location will be? The Phoenix location will probably be up and running sometime in May. But we are up and running now. If folks call us, we'll provide you with a copy of the flyer. You guys can have that. And I'm really excited and happy. And thank you very much for this opportunity. Yeah, wonderful. Thank you for joining us.